Thanks, Luke. Well, there are certainly lots going on in the church these days, so if you have any questions or need some more information on any things that Luke brought to your attention or what you see in your bulletin, please feel free to definitely stop by the Connections desk or some of those things even uh, Pastor Luke and I or Pastor Ryan can help you out with, get some more information on. Well, we're continuing our series today on re, and the real premise of this entire series is this idea that people do and people can change. Now, there are some characteristic traits that all of us have that are more enduring, that pretty much from, from birth to death, they will be enduring within ourselves. But there's other parts of our, of our being, of our personalities, of our characters, of our behaviors that, that do change over time. And so perhaps if you think back through your life, you, you can pinpoint different situations or people or experiences in your life that led to some sort of change. You know, perhaps it was, a, a, say, a person of influence, for example, uh, maybe a mentor somebody you looked up to, maybe even um, reached a point where you started to imitate them, started to mimic parts of the way they talked, the way they acted, because you thought that would be an advancement in your person. You know, for me, for example, before I was a pastor, I was in the business world and in sales and in management, and I started getting really involved in the Dale Carnegie program. And it was so transformational in the way that I related to people in a business sense, the way that I sold items that I was selling, that it just didn't just change the way I did things, but actually my, my, my sales just shot through the roof because I started to mimic this model that was given to me. Other people have events that happen in their lives, perhaps uh, near-death experiences. Uh, maybe you know somebody who won the lottery and that just totally changed them. They wouldn't even talk to you anymore after they won the lottery. Or perhaps uh, in a more positive sense, you went on a missions trip somewhere. Even just being a couple of days or a couple of weeks in another country, another culture, just had such a deep impact upon you, you came back somehow different. Those can have the power to change aspects of who we are. Other people have spiritual events that happen in their lives. We can think of those who were called to vocational ministry, whether that is to, to be a full-time pastor, to, to be a missionary who goes to another area of the world, or even locally. Even people who, who simply respond to the call of Jesus to enter into a relationship with them, these things have profound impacts upon them that change aspects of who they are. Well, over the past seven weeks, we've been observing seven disciples so far. And the catalyst for change that happened in all of them was an encounter with Jesus Christ. And that through that encounter, their lives were refocused upon the things of God to the point where they were willing to leave their previous lives. They were willing to walk away from other responsibilities that had dominated their time up until that point. They were willing to give it all for him. But one of the most radical transformations among all the disciples happened in the life of a man named Levi. Or maybe even you may have heard him referred to as Matthew. He's referred to by those two different names in the scriptures. And now, before Matthew's call, before he was called to be a follower of Jesus Christ, he was a tax collector, and he was despised by his fellow countrymen. And so it was really quite scandalous for Jesus to be calling a tax collector to come join him as one of his followers. But this actually worked out extremely well in the end, because for one thing, Matthew understood the Jewish people very, very well, and it allowed him to later tailor the story of Jesus' ministry in a way that would relate to the Jewish people in, in, a, in a perfect match, that he was able to present to them that Jesus was a long-awaited Messiah and do so by addressing a lot of the questions they would have, by pulling in some of the prophecies and some of the other uh, uh, references to some of the prophets that they were very familiar with. 
Now, like the other four disciples called before him, when the invitation comes, Matthew doesn't hesitate. Jesus calls him, and without hesitation, he leaves what he's doing, and he comes to follow Jesus. And in this case, he wasn't just leaving an area or a profession. He was actually leaving wealth and leaving security. And he was giving that up instead for poverty and uncertainty within what the days ahead would hold. He threw a going away party as well. He was so moved and transformed by what was happening, he decided to go throw a going away party so that he could celebrate the change that was happening with him, but also he wanted his friends to have a chance to meet Jesus too, who had made such a difference in his life. And now the remainder of his life, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Matthew spent the first 15 years helping the church in Jerusalem get established and to grow. And after that, he then went off on a missionary journey into areas like Persia and into Ethiopia. And now eventually, the king of Ethiopia um, ordered to have Matthew killed by a soldier who would come to Matthew during a time of public worship and would kill him with one of his weapons in front of the whole congregation who had been assembled at that worship. And the reason for this was because Matthew had learned that the king of Ethiopia had, had had some desires and some impure relations with a niece, and Matthew decided to publicly rebuke him. And so the king's retaliation was to kill him publicly in front of everybody to make a statement. Now, one of the only significant passages that specifically deals with Matthew is found in all three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the synoptic Gospels. And we're going to have a look at this today out of the book of Matthew, one of these very prominent stories, which is the account of when Jesus sees Matthew working and initiates all of this history that, that he had, initiates it by calling him to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And this call and this encounter, this initiatory call upon his life is so impactful that it causes Matthew to re-examine the direction of his life. It causes him to re-examine the ambitions of his life and to decide to give everything to follow Jesus Christ. So the passage that we're walking through today is found in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And as this passage opens, we see that Jesus is again walking along the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a very popular area where he has been finding different disciples and where he has spent much time ministering and healing and speaking among the people. And so as his popularity has been growing in this region because he spent much time here, so too has the opposition to him from the religious leaders. And he's walking along the shore this one day, and, and as he's walking, a large crowd begins to go around him. And so as he continues walking, he's teaching, and he's talking to them, and he's ministering to them as they walk along this road. Now, people often would come and seek Jesus out. They would take the initiative to come find him. If they heard he was in the area, they would, they would drop what they were doing and they would come to see him. They, they would take that initiative. They would seek him out so they could listen to him. But not everyone. You see, some people were too captivated by the work that they were involved in to even really notice that he had come to town. Such as, well, Matthew or Levi, as he's referred to in Mark's gospel, who was a Jewish businessman known by all people throughout the region, but not necessarily for noble reasons. You see, because as I mentioned, he was a tax collector. And his tax collecting business consisted at a booth along a highway, a highway referred to as, as the Way of the Sea, which was a major trade route in that region. And what he would do is he would collect duties on imported goods. So as farmers or merchants or caravans would come by, he would stop them, and he would charge them duties on the goods that they were importing from one region to the next. 
Now, Matthew, like all tax collectors, were notoriously corrupt in their practices. And they would extort money well above what was actually required by Rome. And they would do that because then they could pocket the extra money for themselves. Very corrupt practices that would go on. And yet nobody really argued with them because their decisions were enforced by the soldiers that were standing behind them. So people didn't really like going past these tax booths, but they didn't have much of a choice if you wanted to get your goods from one area to the next. And being a fellow Jew, his, his fellow countrymen saw him as dishonest. They saw him as a swindler. And they thought that this is a man who has not only betrayed his people, but he has betrayed God himself by these practices and by aligning himself with this occupying people that has come to our land. Now, Levi had no doubt heard about Jesus Christ. Everyone had heard about Jesus throughout the region, but he really had no interest in him that day because he's going about his job. He's going about his dishonest craft of swindling people until Jesus walks up to him that day and simply says to him, follow me. And the scripture tells us that Levi got up and followed him. This is actually the fifth time that a case like this has happened where a simple call of follow me and then people leaving what they're doing to follow Jesus has occurred. And it's really not such a, a, a case of a person searching out Jesus. It's more of a case of Jesus drafting people to come into his inner circle through this simple call. We saw this happen to Peter, to Andrew, to James, to John, where they were so compelled by the invitation of Jesus Christ that they're willing to leave all for him. And in these moments, when they are confronted with the reality of Jesus Christ and the opportunity to become a follower of him, it causes them to re-examine themselves, to re-examine, what am I doing with my life? To consider questions like, like, what is all this work moving towards? Like, what is my life's work going to achieve? What am I striving towards? And the conclusions they arrive at have an impact upon their entire lives because in the end, they come to become followers of Jesus Christ. Now, immediately after this call and this agreement to follow Jesus, Matthew decides to throw a big party. And so he throws a big party back at his house, and it's probably a sort of farewell celebration because he's going to be leaving to, to go on the road with Jesus. But I think it's also safe to assume that he was so impacted by this call, by this encounter with Jesus, that he's thinking, well, I bet you my friends would be impacted by an encounter with him too. Now, there's a problem, though. You see, Matthew's got this reputation of being a crook, and he was considered to be a guy who's cheating his own people, so he doesn't really have a whole lot of friends. It's hard to throw a party if you haven't got any friends. And so the only people who would actually associate with the guy like Levi were people, you know, who would consider coming to his party were tax collectors, other tax collectors, other outcasts from society. You know, those people who would live in violation of the Mosaic law, that was sort of the standard of the day that, that the religious elite were upholding. And if you were in violation of that, then you were shunned and you were an outcast. And, and they found camaraderie amongst one another. So these people who were far from God, these people who maybe they knew but weren't really following his commands, they're the ones who would come together at a party at Levi's house. This would include people like, like idolaters, thieves, drunks, people who were considered sexually immoral, people who lived alternative lifestyles. An interesting guest list for a party. But there are some new names added to the list this time because at this particular party, it now also includes Jesus and his disciples are there with them now too. So as the party's going on, there are some Pharisees who heard about this whole thing happening. They decided to come and check it out. 
And so they come by the property and they can look through the courtyard inside to the house and they can hear the conversations coming out to where they are. And as they peer into the dining room there, they can see Jesus and his disciples. And sure enough, they're sitting on cushions on the floor around a kind of a U-shaped table and they're, and they're talking and they're, they're laughing, they're eating, they're, they're doing what you would do at a, at a banquet with lots of people around. But Jesus was doing more than just that. You see, Jesus was not just sitting among sinners, as they referred to them. He was sharing a meal with them. He was building relationships with them. He was befriending them. And by his presence there, he was saying, you matter. Now, the sight of Jesus sitting at this table, sharing a meal with this group of social pariahs, was absolutely too much for these Pharisees to handle. So they, they grab one of his disciples and they pull him aside and they, and they ask him about this. And they say to him, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And if you listen carefully, you can hear the revulsion in the words that they speak to his disciples. Because you see, in the mind of the Pharisees, there's this very deeply entrenched us versus them dichotomy that had been established where if you don't act like us or think like us, behave like us, if you don't believe like us, then you're not part of us. And it created this animosity with the Pharisees outside judging those inside and those inside judging those outside. And the result? Well, the Pharisees didn't get invited to the party. And the Pharisees think they're shunning the people on the inside, but the reality is the people on the inside were shunning those on the outside as well. But here's the thing. It's not even about the party. See, it's not even about the party. It's about the opportunity for relationship. It's about the opportunity to grant permission into a person's life so that the opportunity exists to share the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, whether Jesus overheard the Pharisees' question or, or if one of the disciples went back inside to report it to him, we really don't know. But what we do know is that when this question comes to Jesus' ears, he comes out and he addresses the Pharisees directly. And he says this in verse 17. Upon hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, there's irony in this statement. You see, because it takes into account the Pharisees' dichotomy of the us versus them. It takes that into account. Because he talks in terms of, you know, of healthy and sick, of, of righteous and sinners. So he, he adopts their frame mind of thinking. And he even would agree with them that there are those attending the party who are, who are sinners, who are under the them category. They are those people who are offside with God. People who need to re-examine their lives in light of Jesus. He would agree with them on that part. But what the Pharisees miss is the deeper meaning. What they miss is that while they think they're the religious elite and they're on the us side who's okay, that Jesus is saying, you guys are sinners too. And you guys need to examine your life in light of me as well. And this has happened throughout time. And the reality is, as we talk about these distinctions between, between the sinners and the righteous, between, between those who are far and those who might be labeled as Pharisees, even in today's world, even in today's church, there are people who harbor some of these first century Pharisee-style dichotomies, where at best, they look at those who are outside the fellowship of the body, and they consider those people to be worthy of preaching at, and at, be at best, worthy of preaching at, but at worst, have already condemned them to hell 
and think that those people are irredeemable. Yet Jesus makes it clear for us in this story that we cannot reach people with whom we are not willing to eat. We cannot reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ if we're not willing to eat with them. You see, other religions are basically the result of humanity's search for God. But Christianity presents itself as God's search for people, even those that are deemed unworthy by the Pharisees. You know, in my years of being a pastor, I've seen this played out in various ways. For example, a few years back, I was watching in the, a church foyer one morning while a group of youth were standing in a group just talking to each other and socializing, doing things that you'd expect them to be doing as they stand in this circle together. And then I watched as, as another young adult, another young lady came over and tried to join the group. And she stood there for a moment and she tried joining the conversation and joking with them and throwing in a few comments. And then I watched as that original group physically moved over and left her standing there by herself. Given a very clear message. This is a closed circle. It's not for you. And it breaks my heart when I witness that. Because I know she examined them in that moment. And because of them, she examined God. And I know that young adult. And through that encounter and a few others, she doesn't step foot in church anymore. She doesn't have any relevance for God in her life anymore. And I wouldn't pin it on that one event, but we can't deny the fact that that had an impact upon her life and set her on a particular journey. Contrast that against another story of a pastor I was recently talking to who encountered another group of young adults who had similar church experiences to that first young lady I mentioned. Now, in addition to having some bad church experiences, these young adults have also come from rough backgrounds. They've been through the foster system. They've, they've come from homes of violence of abuse, a couple of them were actually diagnosed and wrestling with, post, uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder for things that have happened to them in their lives. And, and so they go to places and they do things and they believe things that Pharisees will look down upon, that they would look down upon and they would cast them out for. But as this pastor friend of mine was talking to them, they, they admitted that, you know, all we're really looking for is community. We're looking for a place that we can get some support for these challenges we have. We're looking for a place where we can deal with the pain in our lives. And when they got really honest with them, they actually admitted that they hated doing the things they were doing, that, that quite often the community that they had built for themselves revolved around going out and getting drunk on the weekend because they could escape. And when they would talk to him individually, they would admit that they hated doing it. That's not what they wanted. And then they asked him, they said this question, they said, why is there no church that we can go to? Why is there no place we can go to? So he and his wife took that question. They've opened their home up. And every Saturday morning, it doesn't matter who you are, you can pop by their house and they'll make you breakfast. They will give you community. They will put on an alpha video and have a conversation and they will pray with you. And they will have an open circle for these people to come into. And just maybe through those examples, they'll re-examine God's people again. And hopefully through that, they'll re-examine God again. You see, open circles versus close circles. That, that's essentially what we see demonstrated by Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees on the outside judging them all for it. Open circles versus closed circles. And this has implications for the church today because as those of us who consider ourselves part of the body of Christ, part of 
those who are followers of Christ who have been brought together, whether it's in this particular location or, or other churches or other groups of gatherings of believers around the world. You see, we are those who are not simply called to bring people to Jesus, but also to bring Jesus to people. There's a very important distinction there, to bring Jesus to people. And that can be scary for some people because there are those who are convinced that society will crumble if we don't maintain the barriers. But in Jesus' example in this account, he provides a model for us and a perspective that we can choose to adopt if we wish to. Imagine, for example, you're walking along the road and you saw this beautiful painting laying in a mud puddle. What would you say? What would you do? Would you look at that painting and go, it's just a piece of trash, that filthy painting, and just keep walking? But what if you stopped for a second, you looked at it, and, and you had a bit, of a bit of an awareness of art, and you could look at it, and you realized all of a sudden that it's, it's not just a painting by, by some guy you know, in, his, in his basement, but it's actually a priceless Monet that's laying in that puddle. What would you do then? I would like to believe that you would, you would carefully pick it up, that you would take it home, that you would as gently and caringly as possible try to clean it up as best you could. And, and when you reached the limits of what you could do, you would call somebody in who had professional ability to restore paintings because you knew that beneath the dirt, beneath the muck, was an absolute masterpiece. You see, as we walk through this world, we pick up all kinds of filth and dirt upon us. And we need to have that cleaned off. You know, Pharisees, they look at somebody and that's what they see. They see the filth. They see the outside. They see the dirty outside. They see tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus looks at that same person and he sees the masterpiece that he created. And he knows it needs to be restored. Which was the nature of his whole mission. He gave his life so that the mud and the filth of the world that gets upon us and upon everybody can get removed. Paul told us in Romans that God demonstrated his love for us in this. He said that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, while we were still far from God, while we were still even enemies of God, while we were still hostile towards his love, we denied even his existence. While we were still covered in mud and playing in the puddle, Jesus Christ came and gave his life so that we and all others would even have the option to get cleaned up. That's the most amazing thing about this verse for me, is he didn't just come and die for those that he knew would accept him. He came and he died and paid the ultimate price, knowing that there are those who would outright reject him, and he still died for them, just so that they would at least have the option to choose to get cleaned up. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he loves the world, that he would die for them too, so that whoever it is, if they call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And so I want to call us to re-examine ourselves. I want to call us to re-examine our place in God's mission to the world around us so that we don't find ourselves guilty of having these closed circles that exclude people from the good news of Jesus Christ 
but rather we'll be able to have open circles that draw them in so that they have a place that they can come to where they can take their pain, where they can take their sin, where they can bring their very lives and be restored to the masterpieces that they were created to be. That's what I want to call us to consider. You know, Jesus said to all of them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, most of us are not sick all the time. We catch colds and flus here and there. But have you ever been in a situation where you knew you were sick, but you just wanted to ignore it? I'm not sick. I don't need a doctor, right? I'm guilty of that. I do that quite often because I don't like going to the doctor because I'm a guy. So we don't go to the doctor. But about 15 years ago, I had this little bump on my arm. And it was like a little pimple. So, like, I'm going to go to the doctor for a pimple, right? So I just ignored it. And the pimple grew to a bump. And then the bump got bigger. And it got bigger. And it got more painful, increasingly more painful. Now, I used to wear suits to work every day. And so I would put my suit jacket on. You guys know that, like, suit jackets are a little tight through the arms. And so as the jacket would rub that bump, I would wince and almost fall to my knees and pain. Yet I would not go to the doctor. Because, here's why, I'll be honest. I knew if I went to the doctor, he was going to stick a needle in it, right? Because you got to find out what's inside. And I didn't want to have a needle stuck in it. It hurt enough for my suit jacket. Come on, a needle? So I waited it out. And I waited. But then finally, Nadine found out. And so <laughs> I went to the doctor. And it's a good thing I did because the doctor saw something I didn't see. I saw a bump that hurt. But as he examined my arm, he could see that infection had grown through my entire bicep, my tricep, and it was almost, it was under my armpit, almost into my lymph nodes. And if it had gone any further, it would have gone through my entire system. And so he gave me some very expensive, very powerful antibiotics, and he says, you need to go home and take this and come see me tomorrow, and if I don't see, and he drew a line around the infection, he said, if I don't see that infection, back off that line, I'm putting you in the hospital, because you need some serious treatment. And then he stuck a needle in it. He did. I still have a hole in my arm from it. I do. But it's a good thing he did. Because here's the thing. He, he, he stuck a needle in it, and he took a sample. And when the results came back, I had what's referred to as necrotizing fasciitis, which is also referred to as a skin-eating disease. Is what I had. You see, I had an illness that if it goes untreated, causes death. I needed to see a doctor. Spiritually speaking, this world is full of people with terminal illnesses that need to go see the great physician. Even those of us who are here, who are followers of Jesus Christ, we occasionally need an exam. We occasionally need to re-examine ourselves. Or better yet, we need to ask God to re-examine us and to re-examine us in light of Jesus' call upon our lives. See, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, Search me, God, and know my heart. See if there is any offensive way within me. It's like having the doctor give you a checkup. There might be things going on you know of, you've been avoiding. There might be things that you don't even know go on, like the infection I couldn't see that only a doctor could see, and I needed to have that examination happen. I needed to have that brought to my attention. See, as a follower of Jesus Christ, when we chose to put our trust and our faith in his sacrifice for us, we got cleansed from the guilt of our shame that was no longer held against us. We became new creations in Christ in that moment. 
But aren't we so prone to return to the puddle and get dirty again? Or sometimes things happen where we, we adopt defensive tendencies that, that resemble some of these Pharisees that Jesus was constantly in conflict with. Whichever side of that pendulum you may find yourself on, wherever you may be, if God examines you and brings something to your attention, that's the bad news. But the good news is, is that Jesus Christ is the great physician who has a treatment plan for you. If it will come to your attention and you'll bring it to him. So we can re-examine ourselves in light of Jesus Christ. And then we can re-examine our place within his mission. Because Jesus came to save the lost. See, Jesus not only went to the party with tax collectors and sinners, he left heaven. He came to earth for all sin. For yours, for mine, for those who haven't even confessed yet. He came for all of it. And then when his work was complete, he passed the torch to us. He said, now you go and continue the work that I have started. He said this in Acts 1.8. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, what does a witness do? A witness experiences an event and then attempts to retell or recreate it as close as possible. Therefore, the manner in which we share and reveal and witness the good news of Jesus Christ to people should follow the pattern that Jesus established for us. That means that there are people in our lives that are different than us, that may not think, act, behave, or believe the same way we do, but we are responsible for them. Because in many cases, if we don't go share the good news of Jesus Christ with them, nobody else will. This may happen within your family. You may be the only believer in your house. Aside from you, who is going to share the love of Jesus with them? Perhaps when you have kids when they're young, this is part of the reason that on a fairly often we try to mention to parents that the home is the primary place for the instruction of the children. Don't abdicate that to the church. The church is there to compliment and support, but the home is the primary place. That's the reason we're having this parents meeting following the service is because the curriculum we've chosen for the Sunday school has a component to equip you parents to go home and make that the training place for your children. We want to equip you and encourage you towards that. Perhaps you have grown children who are far from the Lord. Don't give up on them. Keep praying for them. Keep loving them. Stay in their lives. Keep those relationship lines of communication open. God can do amazing things. Our friends, people we work with, people on our teams, in our clubs, in our classrooms, if we don't share the love with them, who is? We have a responsibility to these people. Who do you know in your life who is unchurched? If not you, then who? What about Lewis Estates? What about this community around us? Did you know that when you look at the region from north of 87th Avenue to south of 16A, from the Anthony Hendy as far west as you want to go, we are the only church in that geographical area. There are thousands and thousands of people who live in this community for whatever reason, God has seen fit to preserve this place, to, to put one church in this place. I, I don't know, folks, do we have a responsibility to this region? And if we don't take Jesus Christ to them, who will? And then finally, we can re-examine our perspectives to those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. 
I know that can be challenging because there's so much tension that exists due to the us versus them dichotomies that have been existing within our society. But, you know, it goes both ways where, where we kind of stare at each other across this chasm and there's just so much animosity between the two groups. But Jesus came not only to bridge the divide between us and God, but he also came to bridge the divide between us and them. Because God so loved the world, the world, those who are far from him, those who do not acknowledge him yet, he came because he so loves the world that he sent his one and only son that he would be able to provide eternal life for them. Then as we keep reading to verse 17 after John 3, 16, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. To save the world through him, not to condemn them. So let's not be surprised when sinners act like sinners. They never agreed to agree and abide by the Bible. They haven't agreed to that. It would be like somebody coming up to us and saying, I expect you to abide by the laws of Syria. And you'd be like, I don't live in Syria. Why am I going to abide by the laws of Syria? Or if somebody came up to you and said, I'm going to hold you accountable to what it says in the Quran," you'd be like, I'm not abiding by that. I never agreed to that. Well, likewise, those who have not yet accepted Jesus Christ or those who have not yet accepted the authority of the Bible never agreed to be under its authority. And so we shouldn't be surprised when they don't act the way that it says within the Scriptures. Now, I know the immediate rebuttal to that is, yeah, but God's going to hold them accountable to that. And I agree with you. You're right. He will. But that's not just their problem. It's ours too because he gave them to us. And if we are going to share the good news of Jesus Christ, it begins with us seeing the inherent value that exists within all people. And then establishing relationships that we may take Jesus to them, that we may love them like he does and share his truth with them. And I want to close with a story today of a pastor and author by the name of Tony Campoli, you may have heard of, who wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is a Party. And then he tells a story of this one time he flew to Honolulu and he had some jet lag and couldn't sleep. And so in the middle of the night, he goes down to an all-night diner. And while he's sitting there, he hears a couple tables over a group of prostitutes who are talking. And over the course of their conversation, one of them mentions, he goes, hey, you know, tomorrow is my 39th birthday. And the others look at her and they go, what do you want, a party? What do you want us to do about it? And she kind of retreated back into her shell and said, well, I've never actually had one my whole life, and so I, I guess I shouldn't really expect one now. Now, this struck Campola to the point that he thought it would be a good idea to conspire with the owner of the diner to throw a surprise party for the next day. And so he agreed, and they, they baked a cake, and press preparations were made, and friends were invited, and sure enough, in the middle of the night again, the next day, she walked in to all of her friends yelling, happy birthday, and she was just stunned. She was just shocked that anybody would go through such trouble for her. Like nobody ever had. And why would they take so much effort to do something special for her? And so after they sat for a while and had a piece of cake, she asked if she could take the rest of it home with her, and, and they agreed. But before she left, Campolo said, well, can I pray for you? And she said, yeah, I'd like if you prayed for me. And so he did. He, he prayed for her salvation. He prayed that, that she would change her life choices that, and that God would be good to her. And then she left. And after the prayer and after she left, the owner of the diner was really startled and came up to, to Campolo and said, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you go to? To which he replied, 
I go to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. The story may meet with some criticism, may meet with some skepticism. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to re-examine ourselves and our place within God's mission in light of Jesus and his example that he set for us. And to consider that question, what kind of church do we want to be in the days ahead? Make it a point of conversation, whether it's in the foyer, in your homes, in your cars on the way home, in your small groups. I think my small group will be talking about this in the days ahead. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, we're so glad you're here. Regardless of any past experiences you may have had within the church, I want to ask if you would accept our invitation to re-examine God with fresh eyes, to see the God who loves you, who loves you enough that he sent his son to die for you so that some of that filth, that muck, those things that, that, that bind us and keep holding us back and nag on us and bring shame and guilt to our lives, that those things may be cleansed from our lives and we could find freedom from them. I invite you to come and know him in this life that you could live eternally with him forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that you loved us even before we'd even know the name Jesus. You knew us. You loved us. You came and you died for us all. God, may every morning when we wake up, may we be thankful that you are in our lives. But God, let it not stop there. God, examine us. Each of us are unique. Each of us have different struggles and and opinions and and tendencies. But but God, you are the one who knows all. Examine us, Lord. As individuals, examine us as a church. God, point out anything within us that needs to be brought to our attention that we we can bring it to the great physician, that he could heal it, deal with it. Help us to examine our place within, within the greater mission of Jesus Christ. That we would be effective in carrying forward as witnesses of him to all regions. And God, I especially pray for those who may be among us today that don't have a personal relationship with you. God, whatever those strongholds are, whatever those questions are, whatever those past experiences are that, that have pushed you away, God, if it is of your people, we repent of it. We acknowledge that it has done damage to the kingdom. I pray, Lord, that people would have an openness and a willingness to re-engage, to to look upon you with fresh eyes, to re-examine their lives in light of Jesus Christ. Help us to be people that facilitate that, that promote Jesus Christ in all ways. Amen.